G'day and welcome to this episode of the Geopolitical Pickle. Today is the first of two parts where we speak to International Crisis Group's senior Southern Africa correspondent Piers Pigou. We cover a range of topics, including ICG's role dealing with conflicts across the globe, the ongoing insurgency in Mozambique and their relationship to the Islamic State, and finally, private military contractors such as Russia's Wagner Group and the state's security considerations across the African continent. Stay tuned for part two coming soon and enjoy the episode. As always, we love to hear your thoughts, so get in contact and let us know what you think. Well, thank you very much to be for being here today in the Geopolitical Pico. We're going to have with us Pierre Spigou. He's uh, the senior consultant for uh, Southern Africa for the International Crisis Group. He's also been the former. He's also the former Crisis Group Southern Africa Project Director, and he's also a consultant for the Cabo Ligado Project, which is monitoring the situation in northern Mozambique in Cabo Ligado region, uh, with everything that's going around today. Um, thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you very much for, for the sharing of your experiences that you're going to do now, and we can start. Yep, so again, thank you very much for joining us. And I thought I'd start today with asking you about the uh, International Crisis Group as an organization, what do you guys do? Um, what do you do specifically on Southern Africa? And then we can go from there. Well, Crisis Group established in the mid 90s, uh, essentially to do conduct research and policy recommend, make policy recommendations around conflict prevention, conflict mitigation, and, and really to understand complex uh, crisis situations as it relates to deadly violence uh, globally. So starting with work in, in uh, uh, the Balkans. Uh, the work now is is across 30, 40 countries globally, uh, and the Africa program is the biggest program uh, uh, in the organisation. And my responsibility is uh, the Southern Africa uh, grouping, which kind of aligns with with SADC member states, excluding the DRC. And we have a kind of a deeper dive on issues around Zimbabwe, Mozambique, South African foreign policy, and a watching brief around violence and deadly violence in a number of other countries in the region. So when there's a crisis in Lesotho or yes. Sotini or Angola or Zambia or whatever, we would keep an eye on that and contribute to the organization's monthly publication, Crisis Watch. And in that sense, uh, you've been working lately a lot uh, in the situation of Mozambique. Obviously, you're really active in Twitter in several, uh, in several conflicts of around the world. You've also uh, been commenting and you've also have published uh, on the Ukrainian war, for example. You've uh, being vocal in that sense, coming to coming to Africa, coming specifically to Mozambique uh, with the situation, how do you see it uh, being developed? It's been some some few months already that the that the conflict is going on, few years. Uh, some few years. Um, there is a, a seemingly lowered violence which has curved up again in the in the past few months. Uh, Several actors included. We have the Rwandan forces. We have uh, uh, a SADAC uh, intervention with uh, with the South Africans. Um, how do you see the conflict development lately? Because it's not that much in the spotlight, mm. and uh, it seems from outside it might seem that the conflict might be either ended or or just uh, lowering. But what is your impression in it? Well, the conflict uh, kicked off in terms of violent incidents in October. 2017. So we're nearly five years uh, into this conflict. There's uh, over 4,000 recorded deaths, and that certainly would be an underestimation. And there's been an expansion 
in terms of, of conflict incidents over the last two to three years, which uh, reflect a, a, a the sustainable nature of, of what's been happening. It's, there was not a large geographical expansion uh, of the conflict between 2019 2020 uh, into the first quarter of last year. Really five of the uh, provinces, 13 districts were most egregiously affected. Uh, but it was the incident of the attack on the town of Palmer at late March, early April 2021, which led to uh, the LNG development nearby on the Afungi Peninsula and Total Energies uh, suspended operations there uh, for security reasons. Uh, that the international uh, community took some attention, paid some attention to, to, to what was going on. Uh, unfortunately, that's a reality that we face often when there's a, the threat of expatriate interest, then the international media turns on. But since then, of course, uh, uh, Mozambique has uh, was kind of, of pressurized into looking for external assistance. And in June and <coughs> July of last year, so about a year ago, uh, it cut a deal with Rwanda for a bilateral uh, deal for in intervention of the Rwandese military and some police. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, a deal was being cut within SADC for the uh, uh, for the authorization to deploy a SADC force, mm -hmm. uh, first time ever uh, SADC paying for itself. In fact, first time a, a uh, African mission of this nature has ever been self-financing. Uh, and now we have a uh, about eight or nine countries from the region contributing to a force that is about 2,000 strong at the moment. It's just been expanded in Cabo de Valle. So you've got about 5,000 international uh, security force members in place uh, trying to assist a somewhat demoralized, defunct Mozambican security sector, which is trying to reboot itself with a major training program at the moment uh, from the Europeans and from, from some other supporters. During the initial months of the intervention, uh, certainly the, there was a downtick in the number of attacks by insurgents for the first time they were being hunted and they were being attacked and there has been without doubt a degrading of their capacity uh, as they've been forced out of all their major camps and they were forced back into deep forests a number have been killed a number have been captured uh, they've had to release hostages they've struggled with food security and those kinds of issues but what hasn't happened is that they haven't been totally defeated and what we've seen is particularly uh, uh, from October, November last year, a steady drip of incidents happening uh, in several provinces, a push in late 2021 into Nyasa province, which is to the west of Cabo Delgado, a series of attacks there, which uh, um, forced uh, a number of people to leave. Those attacks stopped by the end of December. And then we saw, most recently since May, uh, middle of May, a push south. Uh, of attacks uh, into southern districts which have previously not been affected by violence, mm. forcing another wave of internally displaced, I think 40-50,000 have mm. been displaced by, by this uh, latest wave of violence, but also simultaneous attacks in the middle of the country, and uh, sorry, in the middle of the district and in the north on the border with Tanzania. What this has demonstrated is, is, is ongoing capacity for, for 
insurgents to uh, maintain a level of terror and, and maintain a level of instability that is undermining the government's plans to get people to go back to their communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could talk about IDPs and the return, uh, which in turn is undermining the timeline for getting the LNG project resuscitated mm-hmm. again. So there's a lot of wheels in motion at the moment around these issues of instability. And I think this latest uptick in violence is causing significant concern for investors uh, and is going to complicate matters uh, specifically because some of us do not believe that the right uh, strategy is in place, both in terms of the hard security objectives of dealing with counterinsurgency, but also with respect to the broader, wider angle of human security interests that need to be played out with the development agenda mm-hmm. and so forth. In that sense, the, because of the um, of the SADAC mission in, in Mozambique, as you were mentioning, is the first mission that is self-funded uh, in in Africa, and it's um, well, it's it's uh, the SAMEM, and it's had different stages. The latest stage, the latest stage was uh, the latest uh, extension of it. If I'm not wrong, was uh, taken took place in, uh, in the early July. Um, but it is a peacekeeping operation, or is in name a peacekeeping operation? It's meant to be multi-dimensional. Um, do you think a peacekeeping operation is uh, enough to mm. to carve down the the violence in that sense? In in April, uh, the last uh, SADC emergency meeting, there was this decision to move from what they call using the African Union framework of scenarios, mm-hmm. from scenario six to scenario five. So that was from peace enforcement to peacekeeping. But there was a kind of an acknowledgement that that it would be kind of scenario five plus, that it would have to be a peacekeeping with still a capacity for peace enforcement to be able to go hunt terrorists, so to speak, into the bush. Uh, uh, Part of the shifting of designation was uh, for political reasons. It also, I think, was a compromise agreement amongst member states who are already looking for a way out of this situation and are concerned Mm. about the longer-term impact financially that drags them down, but also being trapped in in an endless counterinsurgency situation. Also, uh, there's some evidence that Mozambique is not keen to have them there, so it would also be keen to to see Salmon go at some stage. Their preference quite clearly has uh, has been to have Rwanda there and they've been part of efforts to try and assist and support and promote funding for Rwanda and we can talk about that uh, in a moment if you like. The, the, so the scenario five and six thing I wouldn't read too much into it at the moment because if, if it was simply a peacekeeping operation at the moment I, I would certainly argue that would be inappropriate in the circumstances where you still need quite a strong peace enforcement. Mm-hmm. Capacity. Peacekeeping is having people in communities to save, keep keep some communities safe. And of course, this is an essential component to encourage people to come back yeah. to communities. But you know, there needs to be stability beyond the road arteries and the villages mm-hmm. uh, there. And they won't be able to put people in every community. And what you've found recently is that attacks are being launched on communities that either have no presence of security forces or have a smaller presence of particularly Mozambican forces who are quite easily overrun. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and that's been our sense certainly in the last few weeks where we've seen a major emphasis on reprovisioning by the insurgents in terms of their weapons, in terms of food and so forth. So we could be in this kind of scenario five plus for a considerable amount of time. Yeah. On the actual insurgents themselves, you said that it's been an uptick in actual incidents, but is that related potentially to their uh, affiliation with the Islamic State, being able to get more uh, technological know-how, maybe actual weapons and things on the ground because of their association or other with other extremist groups as well? The nature of the relationship between the insurgency and Islamic State is, 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 is contested. Mm. Uh, in that uh, some believe that Islamic State has a much greater hold on uh, the local dynamics and the local direction of the insurgency. Uh, clearly there is a relationship that is evolving. I think that, that that's the first thing we need to, to recognize and that there are connections between uh, Islamic State elements in, in not only in uh, Central Africa but elsewhere. Uh, in the Horn of Africa uh, and, and so forth. Uh, this has been established from some of the intelligence that has been gleaned from materials that have been captured uh, at bases and, and, and so forth. Uh, we've also seen a very pointed and significant uptick in Islamic State claims uh, in the last eight weeks, uh, an unprecedented number of claims uh, that uh, are sometimes uh, same-day claims. They're relatively accurate. Most of them geolocate to the places that they say. Uh, and this suggests that they have really strengthened their relationship with, with IS in terms of media jihad mm. uh, and, and propaganda. Uh, and we see them adhering to the IS rulebook in terms of how to present uh, issues uh, and, and so this has kind of woken up a number of people about this evolving relationship. Now that may not translate at this juncture into the provision of weapons and technologies and, uh, uh, and other support. However, we sh would be foolish to assume that those issues are not explored and there haven't been some instances mm. of, of, of connectivity, whether it's around, you know, it may be around use of drone technology, for example, it may be around the uh, development of IEDs. We've seen, for example, rudimentary IEDs being found uh, in the Mozambique theatre of operation. At the same time, information about how to build IEDs on laptops taken from bases uh, yeah. that have been captured and so forth. Uh, we haven't moved into the terrain of, of suicide bombers and this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, these are issues that may well evolve. We've seen that evolve in the Central African structures as well, where we most recently saw suicide bombing attempts in, in Kampala. So uh, that, that relationship, watch that space is what a lot of people are saying. And, and uh, uh, we are likely to see efforts to... to uh, uh, see maybe some foreign fighters go into the arena. There's been these allegations all along that there have been some foreign fighters in place. There's talk of whites. Uh, they're reflecting some, say, Arabs or Chechnyans or whatever that might, might have been there. But these have 
only ever been very small numbers, if you know, in terms of what's been on the table. The vast majority of foreign fighters come from Tanzania, yeah. uh, and there's been a few from other places. But the bulk of fighters remain Mozambique, because this is essentially what's driven driving this insurgency are local dynamics, uh, yeah. in which. As I said earlier, you know, it's a, it's a moving target, and what's clear is that there has been a radicalization process also for those that have, have uh, joined uh, the insurgency. You know, hundreds of Qurans have been taken yeah. uh, in, in these raids. People, hostages who have been released talk about radicalization programs and so forth. Uh, there's been video material found inside these camps of internal disciplinary processes, the implementation of Sharia, the removal of hands and all this kind mm. of stuff. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, but I think the impact and, and, and the traction is uneven. That's yeah. the sense I have. There's still a measure of independence from these smaller groupings, but one thing that the recent claims show, the claims which are kind of same day or within a day or so, and coming from three separate areas of the province, indicate a level of coordination as well, which we've known in the past, but it shows and that that coordination, you know, got ruptured to a certain extent with the offensives that were taking place when the Rwandans and Salmon came in. But it does look as though they're back together. And, and this raises questions about the nature of the supply chains, the communication networks, and so forth. Uh, that were put in place a very long time ago, arms, caches, all sorts yeah. of things. So just to, to wrap up on Mozambique, I was going to ask you what you think the future prospects are for the conflict, given that, as you said, SADAC troops are not that keen to stay there for a start. How, how entrenched are the Rwandans? Um, the Mozambique Defence Forces are pretty much ineffective in actually combating some of the insurgencies. Um, Will they need some external support, potentially someone else, to come in to actually finally address this issue with a, with a strategy that you talked about that actually doesn't just militarily address the issue, but also addresses the root causes, the the local dynamics that have brought about this insurgency. I mean, at the moment, the kind of the the the, the theoretical plan is is. Uh, external forces will pacify the situation, create a peacekeeping arrangement, and during that period, the rapid reaction unit of the Mozambican military will be trained up by the Europeans and then will be you know, available to take over. There'll be an expansion fortification policing role, perhaps uh, you know, uh, uh, taking the local forces, the militia, uh, that, have, uh, that have been in, engaged in this and formalizing those relationships and so forth to try and put something in place that's you know which would allow the external forces to 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 move on so yeah. to speak or to be only constrained or restricted to a particular area yeah uh, first of all I think the timing on that is unlikely uh, over a couple of years uh, that the Mozambicans would be trained adequately to be able to to, to play that role uh, you know, the training components need to be fortified with mentoring in the field, proper assessments, but they also need to be tied to other broader challenges within the security sector and security sector reform in, 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 in Mozambique. And, and at the mm -hmm. moment, it's kind of a bit of a, a silo in the way that these things are being done. And whilst there are efforts to try and get those that are involved in various training programs 
to coordinate a little bit more because you've got, you know, the Rwandans are doing some police training, the Americans are doing some Marines and Fusileros training, this mm -hmm. one's doing this, you know, to try and herd them together a little bit. As I said, this doesn't really fit into yet a broader sort of sense of security sector reform, political leadership, key leadership issues there. So that's a much longer term process yeah. that would need to be put in place. The other issue which is, of course, right at the heart of the problem is, the, is, is financing. Whilst you know, SADC may be very proud that it's financing itself, it knows that it's relying very heavily on the South Africans to subsidise mm. smaller countries like Lesotho. Uh, but also that the funding is, is relatively low level funding for an operation. And we see that it's not in significant amounts of money, but it's certainly not enough to put the right equipment with the right support structures and units in place. And this is most obvious with the paucity of air assets that are in play at the moment, that, that, that you cannot fight an effective counterinsurgency without good air support. Mm. Uh, and at the moment they don't have that. In fact, the uh, anti-poaching unit DAG that was up there had more helicopter gunship air assets than, than are currently operating at the moment yeah. up there. So this is a huge problem and financing that is, 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 is going to be a struggle. Now, the Rwandans also have got their hand out looking for financing at the moment. Uh, I think a year in, because they're deployed almost a year ago today, uh, it's not clear how much they have spent. Uh, there's talk of them, you know, a million dollars a day. Uh, that sounds a little bit excessive, but but still, you've got three thousand people in place, and you've got an infrastructure to support and so forth. It's not cheap. They claim they are self-financing. No one seems to believe them, and says that somehow it's some kind of dodgy secret French funding, or it's linked to Total or whatever. No one really knows. But they clearly are wanting to look for an alternative funding source. Both the EU and, uh, uh, sorry, both uh, Salmon, SADC and the Rwandans have, have approached the European Peace Facility for funding. They are like this, these uh, applications are being processed at the moment. They're likely to get some funding, but it's not going to be what they're looking for mm. by any means whatsoever. There is no big pot of cash uh, there for, for them, which is what they were looking for. And of course, in between starting looking for money, this Ukrainian war started. So, so, so the, the, the interest of folk outside is, is limited. But there's a caveat here. Obviously, the LNG sector is of very big interest to uh, Western uh, countries in particular, trying to diversify their dependency on mm -hmm. Russian uh, energy supplies. So that's kind of peaked international interest. So in terms of if I have to make a projection of where, where, where this conflict is going at the moment is, first of all, it's important to remember that to date at least, uh, the insurgency hasn't deliberately targeted Western assets. Mm. There's some talk about this, and of course IS made a big noise in 2020 in the middle of the year threatening South Africa and the, and the Crusaders about the LNG sector and blah, 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 and then they made a big noise in May about attacking the graphics mm -hmm. uh, site uh, where they probably didn't even know where they were attacking, they just found some security guards they'd beheaded. So there hasn't been any kind of deliberate attempt to attack Western assets, to you know assassinate people in, in hotels in Pemba or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, so which raises questions about, well, 
if they were really interested as external insurgent, you know, uh, with an IS claim, then surely that would, there'd be more attacks on those. That may be something we see. And I think there is an expectation from those working within that sector that that's where things may go, uh, which I don't think is an unrealistic projection. But I think what this will contribute to is what we've been calling a kind of a green zoning, a Iraqification approach, yeah. where there'll be a fortification of Palma, uh, Afunji Peninsula, the transit uh, routes down to Masimboeda Praia, the port there, and then uh, routes through from Masimboeda Praia through to Moeda, through to the quarries uh, on that side and so forth. So they're, they're, that will be given first priority for security, which will maybe, you know, you've had this joint task force there, which was set up, uh, which Total was subsidizing previously in terms of the security arrangement that had with the Mozambican government. Uh, you know, so they had 750 crack Mozambican troops up there working with total security people and so forth. In fact, during the Palmer attack, those guys remained on that site. They didn't go and re rescue their buddies yeah. in Palmer. I mean, so, you know, so, so it's not particularly tested uh, force there, but uh, and there's some talk about the Rwandans maybe getting some contract to take over some of that role to strengthen their backbone on that kind of stuff. So, so that's what we expect is to see a strengthening security in those areas and then a kind of low intensity conflict occurring in much of the rest of, of, of the province. I wanted to ask you, uh, because you were mentioning, obviously, there's, there's several interests, there's state interests and there's company interests, uh, we're talking about LNG. And uh, we saw that uh, there were external PMCs that were entering Mozambique and that uh, they, had they had really bad results. Uh, and this is, uh, it's, a, it's a trend that obviously it's, it's taken years, but uh, it's come lately in, well, lately, it's, the, it's been there for a while, but uh, PMCs uh, taking roles in security uh, and companies uh, hiring not just PMCs, but also private security companies to take care of their, of their facilities and everything. Uh, we're also seeing that in Mali, there's these claims that uh, the Wagner Group is in there. How do you see that role of uh, these external actors or even states um, financing, uh, well, using uh, PMCs or using private security companies to take over these, uh, these uh, spreads of violence in particular regions of the country? There is, I think it's a twofold. First is the state, because it's got a particular interest, and then is the external companies that they have their particular facilities and and this and these matters how do you see it not just in Cabo Delgado but uh, in the rest of Africa of Africa in the foreseeable future well I think there's a danger that we we, we lump PMCs together and so it's important to yeah. disaggregate the different kind of roles that are being played by the different actors the nature of the legal and contractual relationships that they go into what kind of objectives what kind of of uh, doctrines they're following, what kind of relationship they have with the state. Uh, so it's not a one-size-fits-all, and I think within that context you have private security companies, uh, private military companies that operate according to the book, are relatively transparent uh, and accountable. Uh, uh, and you have those that are, you could say, rogue and mm. are not accountable. Wagner... Uh, has obviously developed a particular reputation uh, and over the 
last few months, a number of allegations about violations and so forth. The nature, the secretive nature of the deals that it makes with host countries uh, and its relationship with the Russian state, of course, uh, raises all sorts of questions, but also I think reinforced by prejudice that we have that have grown in relation to the Russian state anyway. Mm. Uh, so that doesn't, that's, that, that's not a get out of jail free card for Wagner. Uh, many, many questions that Wagner has to answer, but I wouldn't lump them in the same category as some other uh, PMCs. In the Mozambican terrain, of course, Wagner were there for a few months mm. uh, and left. They, they were there on a deal with the FADM, uh, the military uh, uh, at the time, and, and uh, you know, they, they got a bloody nose there, and it would appear that they had trust issues with, with Mozambican military. Uh, the involvement of the Dyke Advisory Group uh, uh, was interesting because, of course, they were already contracted in, for anti-poaching work mm -hmm. uh, there, and, and this seemed to be predicated on personal relationships uh, uh, that, that Dyke himself had a long-term relationship with elements in the Mozambican firmament, so to speak, because of the work he'd done when he was in the Zimbabwean army against Renamo uh, in the 1980s. And so he had some credibility anyway there. But Dyke was basically saying, I can do X, Y, and Z for this kind of price. And he signed on to a contract, no one's seen the contract, but he signed a contract uh, uh, with the Mozambican police, which kind of constrained him to work within the logistical and supply chains of Mozambique and the dysfunction that goes there. So, so it was, uh, it became a bit of what, what you might call a, I don't know if the term will be familiar to your listeners, uh, a Heath Robinson uh, operation that's put together with bits of uh, plastic and, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was cobbled yeah. together, so yeah. to speak, yes. in a way that had to, you know, struggle to buy drums of fuel from here uh, to, to cannibalize machine guns from there in order yeah. to make, you know, one functioning machine gun that they yeah. could then bolt onto the side of a civilian mm -hmm. helicopter, which they could use as a helicopter gunship. I mean, these kinds of things. And, and whilst the Dyke operation was never going to provide a solution in that context in particular, and the way it operated was it, it had a limited flight path in terms of operating out of Pemba and then very limited time over target before it had to come back and refuel yeah. because the Mozambicans couldn't get it together to put proper sites together which they could defend properly for refueling closer to the sites of operation. So, you know, it, it, they, 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 they struggled, I think, enormously, but, you know, others have said, well, you signed up for that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So you are responsible <laughs> for that. And I think that that's a strong argument that, that needs attention. The, the, and it goes back to the earlier point about what's your responsibility in, in, in engaging on this. Uh, so there will be many who will look at the Dyke operation as, as, as irresponsible adventurism. Yeah. But I think, my sense is that if Dyke had not been in place in April to push back, there would have been, I mean, they, they you know, insurgents were on the doorstep of Pemba. They'd taken three... Uh, district capitals within a matter of weeks uh, just before they came. So they kind of helped hold the line mm -hmm. in some respects and their plans to build a, you know, a trainer force that could do, because Dyke as a Rhodesian soldier uh, was trying to develop something called Fire Force, mm -hmm. which is a particular method of counterinsurgency of being able to fly 
groups of 20 to 30 troops into areas, proper aerial support with helicopter gunships that could be mobile and, 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 and move around. And he never got traction on that. And in fact, you talk to security experts uh, about Mozambique now and you say, why do you think there's been no development of the fire force capacity in Mozambique? Silence. <laughs> that, I would say, would be absolutely critical uh, uh, as part of a wider strategy for dealing with this at the moment. If you don't have proper air support, uh, either in medivac or supplies or in terms of helicopter gunship, yeah, a number of these areas where they're fighting is impenetrable mm -hmm. and helicopters are not going to get through that canopy yeah, in the forest. Yeah. But, but you know, if you don't have proper air support, you mm -hmm. are screwed. And I think that's what's happening at the moment is, is that they haven't got in place proper air support. I don't even know whether the big Russian birds that they have flying there, MI, MI-8 and, uh, uh, and so forth, whether they're flying at the moment, they had Ukrainian pilots, uh, whether they've gone back and, and some of the old Mozambican pilots are, are flying them, but not as far as I'm aware in terms of operations <coughs> to support offensives at the moment. Because you were mentioning that um, transnationality of the of the violent forces in the sense not necessarily with uh, with foreign fighters but uh, that there are some uh, claims of uh, sharing intelligence sharing technology sharing practices uh, there are claims even though you've been mentioning that for example in Mozambique there's still those claims are still claims but there is no proper proof of that could uh, the example of the Southern African Defense Corps, uh, of the SADAC, uh, there in Mozambique as a regional force uh, be taken for addressing these issues in the rest of the continent. Because uh, we've seen it with, uh, with uh, Ethiopia, where the African Union was basically, uh, didn't know how to handle the situation properly, or at least they didn't have the strength to properly handle the situation. Uh, we've seen it in Mali. We've seen, in Mali you have, um, uh, the, uh, the task forces, you have the, the G5 Sahel. Can those uh, regional security alliances um, have some future, in a sense, and even um, maybe under the umbrella of the African Union become a reality where the Africans can actually have their own security in the continent, but supporting each other so that they can address these issues? Well, I mean, in, in, what, what you're referring to... Uh, is in theory what the objectives are of the African standby force. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one has to measure the nature of threats in different parts of the continent and look at the extent to which the standby force infrastructure that's been developed over the last 20 years uh, uh, sufficiently addresses those needs and where the, where, where, where the downfall is. I mean, I think that you will find all sorts of limitations with respect to the forces themselves and the evolution of those forces are very uneven. Different countries have not led up to their commitments. There are, it's a kind of, for some of these countries, the, the underwriting of, of, of these forces is not a priority for them. Uh, so, so there's lots of internal difficulties as it relates to, to that trajectory, but it does require Africa to review this process uh, and see where it can build realistically. Uh, for the time being, it seems likely that uh, 
there will be a reliance on some kind of hybrid arrangement at best that you do need some external support mm -hmm. but the African nations would do the heavy lifting mm -hmm. uh, on, on these kinds of things and I think that each conflict then becomes a subject to negotiation now that, that's got positives and negatives to it in terms of kind of marketplace mm -hmm. competition but uh, and also that people then operate bilaterally outside of the parameters of, of the continent's multilateral preferences. That, that's the theory, at least. I mean, they talk about multilateral preferences, but, but many countries would prefer a bilateral outcome. Uh, we see this in Mozambique, of course, yeah. who, who are, who've kept the AU at bay to a large extent, mm -hmm. kept SADC at bay for, for some time, but have, have accepted that they, they, they play an important role. But you don't see Mozambique coming to the table uh, on this to, to, which is ironic given they're just sitting at the, unit, you know, the United Nations Security Council for, mm -hmm. for the next two years, they've just got their position there. Will, will this be a shot in the arm for multilateralism within Mozambique? So, you know, an unanswered question, let me just leave it hanging there. Uh, I, I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, and of course, you've got to remember that, that the different regions have different approaches to multilateralism. And SADC itself has been generally reticent under, you know, under principles of sovereignty and non-interference to engage in this. And, and actually, you know, they struggled for a while in Mozambique because according to their mutual defense pact, there wasn't clarity on being able to force an intervention, mm -hmm. which they could do in certain situations as opposed to having to be invited in. And, and, and that, that then becomes kind of terrain for competition and leverage against each other uh, and, and, and so forth. So, so I think that uh, uh, the longer term trajectory around Africa taking more responsibility, I think it's very much on the agenda, but it's going to emerge in a very uneven way, uh, which will give space to external elements to ply their trade to try and get in there and influence. And that's, you know, it's, it's a marketplace for influence, uh, uh, whether it's through yeah. weapon sales, whether it's through um, agreements on training protocols and, and, and so forth. And, and each country, West and East, has particular interests in the security field. And in a context where African countries under that kind of rubric of sovereignty are generally quite hesitant about and, and suspicious about external players, unless they can really calculate the cost benefit for themselves. And, and, and this is one of the interesting things about Wagner, as well as my colleagues make this point, is that Wagner is perhaps providing for African states what the French used to provide for African states in the 1960s and 70s, is a guarantee of security for the regime, yeah, without too many questions asked. Mm about things, but in return for, you know, access to certain economic uh, goodies and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, you know, I think it, one has to be careful about uh, uh, that model being simply replicated, but, but, there, but, but it does resonate. And, and, and so those, and going back to your earlier question about PMCs, mm -hmm. you know, rather have a, a, a relationship with an outfit that is not going to throw human rights and all sorts of standards and, and external scrutiny through, you know, parliamentary committees in Europe or whatever it might be, if you can make a deal with an outfit that will deliver. Yeah. Uh, so, 
yeah, it's gonna, you know, it's it, it's it's gonna be very interesting. But I, 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 the sense I have is that we are, we have, we have a very fragmented approach to this at the moment, and it's not clear who are the drivers on the continent right now because you need political champions, yeah. which you had in the early two thousands with. Becky and Obasanjo and these kinds of people pushing this kind of multilateral vision, both in terms of security, in terms of economic governance and so forth. That's absent at the moment. We don't have that kind of drive and leadership and we have a continent that's relatively fragmented. I think that's a good place to leave it here for part one. Stay tuned next week for part two of our interview with Piers Pigou. Thanks for tuning in to your political pickle. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for more behind the scenes content. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you and see you next week.